men who are above a certain age, like having a Snapchat is creepy. That's what I said. It's like when athletes put their Snapchat and like their bio of their Instagram or Twitter. And I'm like, oh, that's how I know you're a hoe. Exactly. Like no one has ever, Snapchat was invented for people to send nudes without repercussions. No one has ever had a Snapchat for good intentions. Right. It's just actually not true. Exactly. Welcome to Girl at the Game, the podcast by women for everyone in partnership with CLNS Media. We're your hosts, Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game, and Al of Nesson. And this episode is brought to you by Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Shout out Bet Online for continuing to just keep on when there's no sports. So impressive. Just like us, surviving. I mean, pe- <laughs> people are finding ways to gamble on like anything now. So, anyway. First of all, I just want to say thank you to everybody who listened to our most recent episode with Komet Alston and gave us feedback and engaged with us in conversation. It was a really special episode for us to put out, and we are committed to continuing this conversation, moving forward, continuing to educate ourselves. And we'll talk a little bit later in the episode about some progress that's being made and a lot of things we still need to keep fighting for. This isn't like a one and done situation. But before we get to that, just a few quick updates. Sports are coming back. NBA season looks like it's going to be moved up. Not by much, just a day, but we'll take what we can get, right? And also, Sham Sharania of The Athletic reported today that teams will be allowed to take up to 17 players to Disney World for the return. So that's noteworthy for Celtics fans because it might mean that Taco Fall's season is not over. Um, So Taco Fall, Taco Fall is a signed to a two-way contract. So those players split time, obviously, between the NBA and the G League, but aren't traditionally allowed to play in the playoffs. So part of this expanded roster is that two-way players will be allowed to participate in the return. So hopefully we see him down in Disney because that makes for some great content. Yeah, I I mean, we've been talking about how much we are excited for NBA Disney. Do you remember those commercials from when we were kids where it was like, I'm Hannah Montana and you're watching Disney and then they draw the mouse ears and it goes, yes, doosh, they doosh, have like doosh, the glow doosh. stick. Yeah. So I did that for Kemba, LeBron. I'm trying to remember who else I did it for. I did like five or six of them um, be because too. I was having, I was like texting them all the I was like, I'm having so much fun with this. Um, I love them though. So now I can do one for Taco, which makes me really happy. Imagine uh, it's Taco, really... like, if they're allowed to ride on rides and stuff. Right. If they keep the park open, like, would he even be allowed on a single ride with how tall he is? Like, imagine that dude on a roller coaster. Well, so I was thinking about that because it's like, you know how they have all those signs where it's where it says you must be this tall to ride? But what if it's like you must be not this tall to ride? Because for Taco... He legitimately, I feel like if he was on a roller coaster or like Splash Mountain or something, like you said, the force of going down a steep incline in like one of those tiny little cars would just snap him in half because he's so Right. Tall. I'm thinking his back would just like break backwards. How would his legs fit in the tiny little rides? Can you imagine Taco Fall in a small world after all? Yeah, right. Or that. The irony. Like, I, just, I just need a photograph. 
I need a photograph of him sitting in like a tiny little teacup spin ride or something. Just someone right? make that happen. Someone please make I, that happen. We could call it, it's a fall world after all. <laughs> all right. Celtics, <laughs> get on that. Some other news today. The NHL plans to open training camps for July 10th. So things are happening all around except for MLB, of course. But that's a different right, story. Exactly. Except for baseball, um, unsurprisingly. Maybe we'll have Rachel Luba back on soon to give us an update on those negotiations between the players and the league. I mean, something's got to give. And next episode, we have uh, Jessica Kleinschmidt on of NBC Sports, formerly of MLB Cut 4. And she and I talk about this at length because we're both losing our minds with all the back and forth. But I, if we open up the door to the baseball conversation, even like a crack, you won't get me to stop. So we just need to not talk about it today. Yeah, we're going to close that Pandora box then. And let's get on to it's some for more. the best. Of, it's it's for it's in everybody's best interest. We can't hit them with like a great episode with an amazing interview. And then actually what ends up happening is it's 45 minutes of me screaming about how baseball is ruining itself. That's not fair to the listeners. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll move on. Did you see NASCAR is banning Confederate flags? It's both like a big deal and also congratulations on doing the bare minimum of removing an extremely racist and traumatizing object from your business. Um, but for them, it's like a big deal. Honestly, I will say that NASCAR is NASCAR, obviously, but I've been kind of impressed with their reaction to this whole scandal. They do only have one African-American driver at the NASCAR Cup Series level, Bubba Wallace. And uh, they've allowed him to put Black Lives Matter all over his car for his next race. I don't know. They're, I mean, I liked their statement better than the NFL's, which is made up of like 70% of African-American players. So good job, NASCAR. Keep progressing. We like to see it. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's like the whole point of this is, you know, we're seeing progress. So protesting works. Um, a lot of this stuff is working. We just have to not think that, okay, so we fixed one tiny thing. Like, that's it. We're done. Like, we have to see that the progress works, so we have to keep doing it. And I mean, speaking of the NFL, which first of all, like hypocrisy, their name is Roger Goodell. Joe Kennedy says that the Patriots should sign Colin Kaepernick. I know very little about him as like a quarterback, um, as I'm sure everybody knows football is not my forte. My Matt Forte. Huh? He's retired. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right? Matt Maybe. Forte. Yeah. Yeah. He was a running back. Okay. I did it. That was good. He was drafted by the Bears in 2008. Okay. I tried. But anyway, Colin Kaepernick. I've seen some NFL players on Twitter saying like Colin Kaepernick was an elite quarterback. Someone should sign him. What do you think? I mean, he brought the 49ers to a Super Bowl at the time. So pretty freaking elite. Yeah, I mean, at the time he was starting protesting and kind of beginning all this, it was up in the air whether or not the Niners would cut him or keep him. And what playing shape he's in four or five years later, I mean, he hasn't taken the reps. He had that training camp this offseason that all teams were invited to attend and so I was actually I mean, going to ask you about that because I'm seeing this a lot on social media, this idea of like performative activism and like performative allyship, kind of like going through the motions, but not actually doing anything about it, which is problematic. And I feel like that workout that NFL teams were invited to for him is such a prime example of performative allyship because first of all, 
I don't think a lot of teams showed up, right? Yeah, and there were some weird logistical things with, like, the venue being moved and it getting, like, pushed back or something. This was a few months ago already, so I'm forgetting the details of it, but... It Uh, it was just really not, like, a fair shake for him. Giving him a chance to, like, shut people up, but not actually giving him a chance. Right. I mean, Colin came out recently and said he's, like, in the best shape of his life, I believe, so... I mean, I would like to see a team sign him for sure. The Pats, given their current situation under center, like, I don't really know how much you have to lose, at least to bring him in for the preseason. But we'll see how it plays out. I feel like, unfortunately, it's just kind of a lose-lose situation because if a team brings him in, they're going to get seen as, like, being performative and only doing it kind of to make themselves look good and smooth things over. Like no matter what the reason is, part of that is going to be the reason because of the story of like this whole situation with him since 2016. But the other thing is like, if Cap doesn't do well, if he gets the chance to play, then it's going to give more credence to that narrative that like he wasn't even good to begin with or whatever. So it just sucks. It's a really unfair situation. And it's yet another reason why I, I don't like the NFL and I mean, seeing Roger Goodell talk about this stuff, I was just kind of like, oh my God, dude, no one wants to hear from you. Yeah. And the fact that like his big video statement that he came out with the other day, literally apologizing to players and admitting the league was wrong for how they handled the protests back in 2016. Like he never even mentioned Kaepernick's name and come to find out that video, like he got stiff armed into making that by the players because One of his own league employees, a content creator for the NFL, just went rogue and texted some players and was like, I'm a league employee and I'm not happy with their really watered down statement. So I think you guys should make this video to kind of force their hand and demand they take a real stand on this. And that's exactly what happened. That's like when you saw that I am George Floyd video with Odell and Gilmore and all these star players it forced Goodell to be like, oh, shit, this looks really bad. I better come out with this another statement. And that's exactly what happened. So it's like, would he have otherwise? Yeah. Not to go back into the baseball Pandora's box, but I feel like we should just touch on this for a second because I wrote about it for girlatthegame.com yesterday. The Red Sox put out like a statement in response to Tory Hunter's remarks last week about how the Red Sox were one of the only teams that he had a no trade clause to in his contracts because he experienced enduring racism when he would play at Fenway, like repeated racial abuse. And he said that though he did experience it at many ballparks, it was the worst in Boston. And it was like, quote, so consistent. And honestly, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that the Red Sox responded the way that they did because like they literally said Tory Hunter's experience is real if you doubt him because you've never heard it yourself take it from us it happens yeah considering I've been really annoyed with how basically for the last three months throughout all of these player owner negotiations the Red Sox are like meanwhile watch another clip of 800 David Ortiz home runs today and I'm like dude read the room so for that reason like I'm pleasantly surprised and also just because you know Boston has like some really bad racist history. And I I said the Red Sox admitting that racism exists in Boston is kind of like me saying that oftentimes our beautiful blue sky has clouds in it. Duh. But it's still important that they said it. Like, you can't solve a problem if you don't even admit that you have a problem. 
Yeah, and it was a strong stand too. It wasn't just like a half-assed quick. No, I mean they literally they're like, "Take it from us. We know that that racist shit goes down at Fenway Park." It's like, oh damn, okay. And I think that went a long way for Tory Hunter and also Adam Jones. He came out and also said the Red Sox saying that was huge. Spelled it with like a bunch of U's. And also shout out to like the 1100 plus athletes and coaches and 300 plus front office personnel across football, basketball, and MLB who signed that players coalition thing, trying to get Congress to pass the ending qualified immunity act. Just like really amazing to see all these athletes stepping up, LeBron doing that voter thing to end like voter suppression and make sure people vote. Just so many amazing athlete activists out there doing stuff. It's great to see. Uh, We just have to like keep going. I mean, like last week we dedicated our episode to Breonna Taylor and the police report came out today and like they honestly had the audacity to say that she had no injuries and that there was no forced entry when they broke into her home while she was sleeping and shot her eight times. Yeah, she was literally sleeping in bed. Yeah, and also, like, the person that they were looking for had already been arrested and was in custody. Then it turns out one of the cops has been accused of sexual assault by multiple women, and, like, nothing has come from that either. And these guys still haven't been fired or arrested, and the news cycle's moving on, and, like, it can't move on. Like, we have to fight for this woman. Absolutely. This woman and her family deserve justice. Just, it's inexcusable. There's so much wrong with this situation, but basically... We need to email, call, sign petitions, donate to important causes. Shout We're going to link from the freaking rooftop. Yeah tweet about her just like keep her memory alive and we're linking the same act blue racial justice organization page in the podcast description they split your donations between multiple very worthy causes that are working to dismantle systemic racism and just make this country a better place for everybody and get justice for brianna just like do everything you can don't let this stuff happen i mean this is so unacceptable it's so beyond unacceptable so We are continuing with our initiative to pass the mic to Black people, and we have another awesome guest for you guys this week. I grew up playing this game called Stratomatic, which is like a baseball board game. Apparently now they have an online version, but I played it the old-fashioned way with my dad on Saturday afternoons after synagogue. It's how I fell in love with baseball. You have player cards. They're kind of like advanced versions of baseball cards, and my dad being like a collector of all things educational had literally 30 different decks of cards and one of the decks of cards was like different from all the rest i remember asking my dad about it and he's like well this is the negro leagues so i learned about the negro leagues from playing stratomatic with my dad and he told me all these stories our guest bob kendrick who is the president of the negro leagues museum one of the most incredible people in the baseball world he's been the president for over a decade he's been volunteering and working for the negro leagues museum since the early 90s. He has the most incredible stories. And I am fortunate enough to have become friends with him. Every time I've talked to him, I interviewed him when the Negro Leagues Museum was vandalized in the summer of 2018 and the racially motivated vandalism. And it's like, they were just about to open this brand new, very expensive part of the museum that they'd been working on for years. And it got destroyed by vandalism. So like such a depressing moment and he was still so full of hope. And then I interviewed him during this pandemic, just to note, we recorded this interview a a while before George Floyd's murder. And so we do talk about racial issues, but this, this was recorded before. So we unfortunately did not get to speak with him about the 
Black Lives Matter movement and the protests, just for clarification. But, you know, we're like recording in the middle of a global pandemic and he is so full of hope and he just improves my mood every time we talk and he just brings so much happiness to everybody around him. And you will literally never meet a person who has a bad word to say about Bob. He is just one of those incredible people. So it was such a treat to have him on. And I'm going to just instead of talking about how incredible Bob is, you can hear for himself. Like, we'll just play the interview. (laughs) Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and Negro Leagues historian and baseball historian. I am so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for being our guest. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to catch up with you again. Thanks so much for having me on. I cannot express, like, to listeners and to you, I'm fangirling right now. This is such a such a treat to get to talk to you again, especially because you recently celebrated your nine-year anniversary as president of the museum. Yes, yes. You know, time truly flies. It seems like it was just yesterday I was setting my boxes back down I had left the museum in 2010 to take on another role with another not-for-profit organization. And then 13 months later, here I am coming right back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum or coming home to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And it seems like I just set my boxes down and literally hit the ground running. We've been running ever since, but it's been a magical nine years uh, as we've had you know, a really significant turnaround here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And so I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish over those nine years. Now, that being said, we still have a lot of work to do. We've just scratched the surface. But yeah, it's been nine amazing years for me as president. It's hard to believe, but it's been, I think, 27 years of affiliation with this museum. So I got involved with this place almost from its infancy going all the way back to 1993. So it's been a glorious ride for me working with an organization that I am just absolutely passionate about. And never in my wildest dreams, Gabrielle, would I have thought that this would have turned into a career when I began volunteering with the museum way back in 1993, but it's done just that. And it's been one of the most rewarding and gratifying things I think I could have ever done. They're so lucky to have you. I was actually going to say you began as a volunteer when you were working with the Kansas City Star, correct? Yes, yes. I was working for the Kansas City Star in its promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first ever traveling exhibition. It debuted in the storefront space right across the street from where the museum currently operates inside the Lincoln Building. And it was an exhibition called Discover Greatness. Believe it or not, that exhibit is still traveling and touring the country right now. It is at the Yogi Berra Museum and was playing to rave reviews before coronavirus shut them down as it has, you know, everything else in our country right now. And and we've extended the stay of our Discover Greatness exhibit there at the Yogi Berra Museum. And so I drew the assignment of promoting that first ever traveling exhibition. We had some great success. We drew over 10,000 people here to Historic 18th Divine during the month of August to see that exhibition. And you have to understand that at that particular time, there was nothing else at Historic 18th and Vine outside this building called the Lincoln Building. 18th and Vine, Gabrielle, like a lot of urban areas in this country, had died and it had been left abandoned. And 
we decided that we would build a museum in what was once one of the most proudest, prominent African-American communities in the country. And, and when we made that decision, people thought we were crazy. Uh, the late, great Buck O'Neill, for all of his infinite wisdom, said, this is where we will build this museum. And when we do so, we will help resurrect what was once a, a prominent community. And, and we've done just that 30 years later. And so, but that's how it all started with me. By 1998, I had become the museum's first director of marketing and, and really been involved with this project ever since in a professional capacity outside of that 13 months that I was gone to run the National Sports Center for the Disabled. And it was so funny because when I made the decision to leave, we had a big going away party. They gave me all these nice gifts and said all these nice things about me. And then 13 months later, here I am coming back. And I'm saying to myself, I wonder if they're going to ask me for my gifts back. <laughs> but it's been, it's been a joyous ride, which, like I said, an institution that is so near and dear to my heart. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. Sports are slowly making their way back with the UFC, NASCAR, and soccer leading the way. Bet Online has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming matches this weekend. Need more? Bet Online has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening every day live for you to check out. And if you're looking for something else other than sports, Bet Online has hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. Visit betonline.ag or use your mobile device and join now to receive your new welcome bonus and start playing today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. You're so synonymous with them at this point that I cannot imagine them without you. I didn't even know until I was, you know, preparing to catch up with you that you had ever left the museum. And you went to the National Sports Center for the Disabled in Kansas City. Yes, yes. Wonderful organization did provided therapeutic recreational sports programming for folks with disabilities. And it was very heartwarming and very gratifying as well. But, you know, to be honest, my heart was always here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I was following in the footsteps of my friend, my mentor, my confidant, the late, great Buck O'Neill. And so when I left, it was under some circumstances when the museum was not doing well. They had brought in a new leader of the organization. And to be frank, he and I just did not see eye to eye, and I just felt like it was going to be better for me to give him the latitude to run the organization the way that he felt like he needed to run the organization without feeling like I was looking over his shoulder, even though I did not believe in what his vision was. And so it was just best for me to get out the way. And so that's what I did. I made that cognizant decision to move on. And unfortunately, it did not work out, and the museum was really starting to struggle and so they called and asked if I would consider coming back, and I made the decision to do so. And I think a lot of people thought it would be an easy decision for me because they knew how much I love this place, but it may have been one of the most excruciating decisions that I've ever had to make. You know, again, given the circumstances, I had missed getting the job by one vote way back in, I guess, 2008 or so, and, and a split board vote, and I missed by one vote. And so, which again, you know, if you're missing by one vote, it's not, a, even if you win it, it's not an overwhelming show of confidence from, from your board members. So it may have been a blessing in disguise that I didn't get it the first time around, but I had left. Um, and so 
you start to grapple with yourself. Obviously, there's the, the ego side that says, well, I wasn't good enough the first time around, even though I thought I had done everything that you could possibly do to demonstrate that I was ready for this next step. Well, they thought otherwise. And, and so you kind of take solace in that and you, you say, okay, well, you just pick yourself up, dust stuff off, move on. And, and so I had pretty much done that. But again, you don't just divorce yourself from an organization that you've given so much to just because things may may not have worked out the way that you thought they should have worked out. And so as things were really starting to take a turn for the worst here, and it really was the perfect storm, I should say, you know, we had lost Buck O'Neill, new transition that wasn't working, and the economy was tanking at the same time. And, and so it, it created a synopsis that really kind of helped kind of turn things the wrong way for this museum. And so when I'm sitting there now trying to make the decision on whether or not to come back, you you know you never make these decisions with your heart. At least you're not supposed to. And so I am trying my best to be as rational and trying to talk myself out of coming back. Because the thing that I think I was grappling with was the fact that what happens if you can't fix it? Because, you know, the way we are in our society, we never remember the person who messed it up. We just remember the person who was there when it falls. So whatever little legacy I may have had, you know, working with Buck O'Neill for all those years was still in place. And so if you come back and this thing doesn't work, everybody's going to point the finger at old Bob. And so I'm trying to talk myself out of it. And the more I'm trying to be rational, I swear Buck O'Neill was standing on my shoulder saying, come on back home. So if I tell you I made the decision with anything other than my heart, I would be lying. And and I finally just said to myself, you've got to go back and you have to try. Even at the risk of failing, you have to try. You know, you knew how much this mean, meant to Buck and how much he put into this. And you've got to go back and try and see if you can do this. And I walked back in his office April of 2011. And we've been rolling ever since. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't run across some bumps in the roads. And that's the nature of the beast of what we do. But we've really made some tremendous strides in keeping Buck's Museum healthy, whole. And, you know, I'm excited about the future of our great museum. I'm so excited about it, too. And you and Buck O'Neill, I mean, I can totally see that being the way that you ended up coming back to the museum. Because from our conversations and just the way that you talk about Buck O'Neill, you had such a special relationship but I don't think you've ever actually told me how your relationship with him really began because it, it blossomed into something so spectacular, but that doesn't happen overnight. No, it doesn't. You know, And I didn't meet Buck until I started volunteering with the museum back in 1993, which is amazing. We had never in our social circles, and Kansas City's not that big you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. And, and so you would think over time that we would have been in the same place at the same time But I I had not met him. I'd heard the name, but I did not meet him until 1993. And so as I got involved with the museum in that volunteer role, serving on his board of directors and so forth, uh, we started to grow a relationship. But then after I became the museum's first director of marketing in 1998, that's when it really took off. I think he saw something in me. He, He saw a spark and he saw something in me. And I remember when he gave me the hardback copy of his acclaimed book, I Was Right on Time. And that's the only thing that I have signed by Buck O'Neill. 
all these years of hanging out and traveling with Buck, people think that I just have a lot of things that's autographed by Buck, but I don't. I never asked him for anything because we were just doing what we do. You know, he was my guy. We were hanging out, having a great time in, in the process of doing so. It was never about the autographs and those kinds of things. It was about an experience that I still hold near and dear to my heart. But the one thing that I do have signed by Buck O'Neill is the hardback copy of his book, I Was Right on Time, and he signed it to the money man. And and, and that's perhaps <laughs> one of my most precious possessions. And at that point, he and I started traveling all over the country. You know, he's gallivanting, preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum you know, to any and everybody would listen. And I guess I feel like one of his disciples. You know, I'm there for the ride. Uh, and, I, and I'm soaking it up every step of the way. And so it moves beyond a business relationship. We played golf together. We hung out together. He became really one of my best friends. And as I mentioned in the, in the lead-in, my confidant and my mentor. I learned a lot. And as I tell people all the time, one of the smartest things I think I could have ever done was I kept my mouth closed and I listened because there was a lot of wisdom to be imparted if you wanted it. He didn't force it on you, but he just threw out these little nuggets, these little jewels, and you just soak it in. And I'll be honest, Gabrielle, there's not a single day that goes by that I don't think about the late, great Buck O'Neill. I really do feel like he's still there with me governing my steps. When I have difficult decisions to make, I try to draw inspiration from uh, what would Buck say? What would Buck think? What would Buck do? And so he's become an incredible part of me, even for almost 14 years after he's gone. And, and for me, it's all about making sure that I keep the memory and the legacy of Buck O'Neill alive, the man who built this, this wonderful edifice known as the Negro Leagues Museum. And he did it because he wanted the other 2,600 men and women to not be forgotten. And that drives me every single day, you know, as it relates to the work we do here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But, you know, he played, he played and he still plays an important role in my life. It's such a uniquely special relationship that you guys had. And I think it's definitely fair to say he's not only kind of your guardian angel, but he's the museum's guardian angel. I think so. You know, but even in the midst of the disappointment that has hit us as it relates to this coronavirus and as you touched on, 100th anniversary celebration, and even in the midst of that, you know, there's still this level of optimism. You know, I was telling some folks the other day as I was doing some interviews and we were talking about how much of this year that we might be able to salvage, will we be able to salvage any of it? And as I told some folks, in December, we'll learn if Buck O'Neill is going to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. All of us obviously still remember or were very disappointed by what happened, the outcome that happened in 2006 when he missed by one vote from yeah. getting into the Hall of Fame and the effect and the impact that that had on a nation of baseball fans and certainly one of the most difficult times in my life, both personally and professionally, because we didn't know by the end of the year he would be gone. He passed away. But there's this possibility that Buck may get it in, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Well, the, the announcement would come in December at the winter meetings. And that will give me another celebration to orchestrate in 2021 if it does indeed happen. And so he seemingly always brings joy out of despair. And at what is now one of the darkest times for us because so much was riding on this centennial celebration, 
there is a light possibly at the end of the tunnel for us. And it seems to just always happen that way. And I tell people all the time, I don't know if you believe in divine intervention, but there's always something very divine about Buck O'Neill and his imprint and certainly the imprint he has had on this museum. So it gives me cause to be optimistic and hopeful. And, and I think in this time, that's what you cling to. You need that. And, and, and I think that is what lifts our spirits here at the Negro Lynx Museum. Absolutely. And the first time we spoke on the phone, we were talking about the vandalism that had happened at yes. the new Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. And the thing that I came away from it was that amidst this awful setback, you had just so much passion and perseverance and hope. And that was so astounding to me because this was something that the museum had been working on for a very long time. Yeah. And right before it was supposed to be readied, this awful thing happened. And yet you only had the most positive things to say. And, and, and I think when you are a steward of this story, you kind of understand and you embrace the fact that you can't wallow in self-pity because these athletes never did. They never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. Now, I'll be honest, when I walked into that building the first day and saw all that water in the building, I was as disheartened as I've ever been, I think, in my life particularly after we found out that it was done deliberately. Because I tell people all the time, Gary, had it been an accident, and accidents do occur. We'd have had the same amount of damage, but I wouldn't have felt the same way. Of course. But once you found, yeah, once you found out that it was done deliberately and heinously and maliciously, it hurt you to your core. And as I tell people, I was ready to wave the white flag. At that point, you are ready to give up on people when you know you can't give up on people. And what happens? Out of the darkness comes this ray of light. People started to literally, no pun intended, step to the plate. And all of a sudden, this groundswell of support from people we knew and others who we didn't know started to come in. And what does it do? It renews your spirit in people. Yeah, and it reminded us of what Buck would always say. Bad things, people will do bad things. Good people will fix them. And the good people started to step up, and, and it lifts your spirit. And now you have even greater resolve because, as I've said on many occasions, you don't want the hater to have the last laugh. And so now there's even greater resolve to get this project done and to go and make sure that Buck's dream of having this education and research center becomes a reality. And, and so, yeah, and, and again, it was just amazing to see. And we always know that there are more good people than there are bad people, but every now and then you need to be reminded. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it lifts your spirits and it renews your, your, your energy level. And now you're ready to go out and, and tackle the world and try to make these things happen. So, yeah, it was a setback, and we just kind of now have dug in, and we're moving forward again. And I think the same thing will happen with this coronavirus pandemic. It, it has derailed some of our plans, but it hasn't totally killed our spirits. And so we still believe. 
And I think we'll be able to salvage this thing and we'll be able to turn it into something great and we'll be able to use this platform that we had to continue to do great things for this museum. And, and, and at the heart of that is setting it up to operate in perpetuity. I think that's the thing that we wanted to see happen with this centennial celebration is that we finally raise the resources that are needed to make sure that the museum will operate for a long, long time. And so I don't think that opportunity has been lost. And so we'll just dig in and, and hopefully this, this coronavirus situation will pass sooner than later, but we'll get back out there and, and get the ball rolling one more time. I mean, if anything, this is an opportunity to kind of market the museum in a different way because you have all these people who they might not be able to afford to travel to the museum but they're stuck at home right now with not a lot to do and they're spending all their time basically on the internet. And yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And we are learning a lot of things. We've introduced the museum digitally now in ways in which I had never even really thought about because you always want people to come through your doors. Of course. But these kinds of opportunities that I have with you today, and I've been doing a number of these interviews and, we spent Jackie Robinson Day pretty much all day talking about the museum and Jackie Robinson's connection to the Negro Leagues. And so I think more people now may be aware of the museum than ever before at a time when we're shut down. People are looking for things. And for me, it was important that we at least stay on top of mind for folks who were interested in, in this subject matter and this story. You know, that makes me so happy because I am like a lifelong fan. but. I do think, like you said, out of a dark time, there are so many possibilities and so many reasons to hold on to hope. And that's exactly what this time can be for the Negro Leagues Museum, because you have this chance to spread it around the world for parents to be like, instead of letting your kids stare at Call of Duty or I don't know what video <laughs> I don't know video games. I've, I've honestly never played <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but to offer them the chance to like learn about an incredible piece of sports history. That's an unbelievable opportunity for families that might otherwise not have the time or resources to be able to familiarize themselves with what you guys are doing. Yeah, and, and it's given us a new business model to kind of now look at. And, and so now we're starting to look more at digitizing some of our assets, even the traveling exhibitions. And I think we're finding some avenues that could be revenue streams for the museum through that process. And so, you know, yeah, we've had a little time as a result of the shutdown to kind of think about other ways in which we can enhance the museum experience for folks. So I do think out of this shutdown, it has given us an opportunity to challenge ourselves to find new and creative and interesting ways to not only market the museum, but provide access to the museum, utilizing a digital platform. And so now, we're starting to examine other possibilities, even with our traveling exhibitions and digitizing them and creating an experience where people who may not get a chance to see it in a given city can still see it and experience and still generate some revenue for the museum in doing so. And so, yeah, there's already been something positive that has come out of this coronavirus shutdown, even though, as you well know, I can't wait for this to be over, and I want things to be back to normal 
and, and I want to be able to hang out with people here at the museum and shake hands and high five and take pictures with people again. And, you know, I miss that immensely. But at least uh, while we're in this downtime, we're we're trying to be as innovative and creative as we can. And it's helped shape a new business model, I believe, for the museum that is going to be beneficial for us for years to come. Yes. Well, you are a very hands-on president. So it's not like, you know, you're just like, I want to get back to work to sit behind my desk. You're, you're, <laughs> out, you're out there every day. You're, you're not only the president, you're like the, I don't want to say mascot, because that's not, that doesn't give you enough of the glory that you deserve for what you do. But, you know, it's important to me. And I've never been one that just says, okay, I'm going to sit behind the desk and tell other people what to do. I just want to be out there in front as well. And I love, I mean, some of the most special days for me is when I'm in the exhibition and walking around the museum with people and, and seeing their reaction to the story and telling the stories that I love to tell, the stories that I learned firsthand from the great Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin, Minnie Minoso, the Ernie Banks of the world, and sharing those stories. So I enjoy that immensely. Uh, obviously, the role itself takes on so many different levels and needs and so I don't get to do that even as much as I like to but I am very hands-on and, and I do think people appreciate that uh, the look on their eyes and the surprise on their eye in their eyes sometimes when people say well you know you you just walked around the museum with the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and they're blown away because I don't really ever say a whole lot I just start running my mouth and, and, and people start to kind of gather around and we just walk talk tell stories and have a good time, and then somebody will say, or maybe at the very end of the experience, I will thank them and, and, and then tell them who I am if they don't already know who I am. And so I enjoy that as much as anything. I, I could just never sit behind the desk and, and bark out instructions for other people. I, I try to get out on the front line with my team because we are a team, and there's no task that is too menial for me to do. And and so, uh, you know, I think that has been part of the reason why we've had so much success over these last nine years. I can't imagine the Negro Leagues Museum without you. But that's also because I have been fortunate enough to hear stories from you firsthand. And it, it's actually very fortuitous. We are recording the day after Jackie Robinson Day. And I'm sure that usually the museum does special things on April 15th every year. Yeah, we were... We were planning to open a brand new exhibit both here as well as a new a traveling a new traveling exhibit called Barrier Breakers. And, and the Barrier Breaker exhibit, Gabrielle, will chronicle all of the players who broke their respective major league team color barriers going from Jackie Robinson in nineteen forty seven through the late Pompsey Green in nineteen fifty nine, who of course was the last player with the Boston Red Sox. And, of course, we lost Mr. Green last July, sadly. And so this exhibit was going to chronicle all of their stories. Because, as I tell people all the time, it didn't get any easier for Pumpson Green when he broke the color barrier with your Red Sox in 1959 than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947. These athletes all had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to navigate their path into the major leagues. And yet, as we so oftentimes do in our society, we just only celebrate the first. And, and, and rightfully, we celebrate Jackie Robinson for it being that pioneering first. But it doesn't diminish the others who also were the first 
with their respective major league teams. And, and so Larry Doby would break the color barrier in the American League just weeks after Jackie. He is almost an afterthought. But again, that's how we are in our society. We remember the first, and we rarely ever remember the second. And God knows if you're number 16, you can pretty much forget it. And so our mindset was, if we don't tell these stories, who will? And so we we created this wonderful traveling exhibition called Barrier Breakers. It was going to debut in Los Angeles on April 15th. And, of course, the coronavirus situation has now delayed that. But what I'm excited about is there's certainly been a lot of interest in our traveling exhibitions, not only Barrier Breaker, but all of our traveling exhibitions, you know, as people been kind of piggybacking on this 100th anniversary and they were looking for ways to celebrate with us, which we are absolutely delighted about. In this case, it's absolutely the more the merrier. We didn't want this celebration to be isolated in Kansas City. And so, yeah, we're excited to give people an opportunity to see it both in a permanent capacity here at the museum and then also have it hit the road. Uh, one of the events that did get postponed because of the coronavirus was our annual Jazz and Jackie celebration. And as some folks may know, Jackie Robinson, of course, spent the 1945 season with the great Kansas City Monarchs. And it's something that we're extraordinarily proud of, the fact that it was our great city and the Negro Leagues that gave America arguably its greatest hero in Jackie Robinson. Well, the year that he spent in Kansas City, he fell in love with everything that Kansas City is famous for, barbecue and jazz. And and so each year now we do kind of a celebration to help people understand his Kansas City roots because I think when we talk about Jackie in the grand scheme of things, it's rare that we talk about his Negro Leagues career. It is always based on the first day that he stepped on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, we don't think that you can exclude the year that he played here, because had it not been for the Negro Leagues, you don't find Jackie Robinson. And so we do that event called Jazz and Jackie, to draw the parallel and connection of his Kansas City ties and his love of jazz. And, and, of course, New Orleans will lay claim to jazz, but we certainly believe that jazz got its soul in Kansas City. And, and so we always have an annual Jackie Robinson concert, jazz concert, and so we've postponed that and moved it to October the 24th, and so we're hopeful that we'll still be able to do that. Some of the other things that we had planned, particularly our National Day of Celebration with Major League Baseball. You know, June 27th was going to be what we called a National Day of Recognition for the Negro Leagues, where all 30 Major League teams were going to wear our Centennial Negro Leagues patch on their sleeve. And we were, in essence, creating a, kind of a tip your cap to the Negro Leagues. And it was going to be an unprecedented show of solidarity amongst players and fans and teams and and as you know, as a fan of this game, there's nothing more honorable than you can do in our sport than tip your cap. And to see the players and fans all together and essentially tipping their cap to the Negro Leagues, I think was going to be a watershed moment for Negro Leagues history and for this museum. And so we don't know what that situation is going to be if and when we get baseball restarted or started in this case and whether or not we'll be able to do that or not. But, you know, we're certainly hopeful, we remain hopeful about that opportunity. We're still right now planning our November the 14th 
Centennial Gala uh, here in Kansas City. So that is still being planned, and we'll obviously have to see how officials deem this virus situation to make a determination. But we still got a little bit of time as it relates to that. But a lot of our spring summer events, we're going to either have to cancel or, or postpone them to some other time. Makes me so sad. Oh, I, this was such a big year for you guys. I mean, you're super hopeful about it, but there is always like that twinge of sadness that these things oh, are postponed. And I've had friends that are postponing their weddings and people who have not been able to have proper funerals for loved ones. Exactly. It's such a crazy time. And I think, you know, some oh. people who don't understand or didn't grow up loving sports don't understand the mixture of pain and kind of confusion about this time without sports because for people who love them you know we kind of live our yearly calendars around sports you know spring and summer and fall are for baseball and fall winter spring is basketball football hockey and without them you know we all kind of feel adrift no it's not and i think that's probably been one of the biggest challenges you know to be isolated at home and you don't even have sports to watch and, and so you know, any time that I've taken, and it's rare that I take time off, you can really just sit there and you can watch whatever whatever the season is, whether it's football, basketball, baseball. Of course, this time of the year, as baseball season rolls around, this is our biggest tourist season time. Yeah. So as we move into May and June and July, that is the height of our tourist season built around the baseball season. And, and so, yeah, you, you, it certainly creates a level of sadness. And for us, we were on such a tremendous high. You know, when we had the 100th anniversary commemoration on February 13th here in Kansas City, and of course, February 13th, 1920, was the day that Rube Foster signed the Negro Leagues into existence. And so we go right back into the Paseo YMCA where that meeting took place, and we've got the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, and Xavier James, who's the chief operating officer for the Major League Baseball Players Association, the Honorable Quentin Lucas, the Mayor of Kansas City, Royals legend, Hall of Famer Frank Whiten, who is now the Jackson County Executive, is there. Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe is with us. Uh, the new Royals owner, John Sherman, is all. they're all there with me for this 100th anniversary commemoration. And, and, of course, it was at that event that Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced a joint $1 million contribution to the museum. So we are now off and running. We got this new exhibit, Black Baseball in Living Color, that features the incredible works of Greg Kreinler on display here. Yes, I love him. Yes, yes, people you are just flocking that. to the museum. Yeah, they flock into the museum to see the exhibition, all the excitement and energy. And then when you know, a month later, it comes to a screeching halt. And, and so now it's about, okay, trying to ride this storm out and then see if we can't regenerate this incredible momentum that we had built. Uh, we couldn't have gotten off to a better start. And as you've touched on, this is such an important year for the museum because the centennial celebration was providing us a national platform unlike any that we've ever had. It is perhaps outside of the grand opening, the establishment of this museum in 1990, the grand opening of the new facility in 1997, the death of Buck O'Neill in 2006, 
this was the largest platform the museum has ever had. And, you know, you're trying to build your strategies and plans around executing a sensational centennial celebration and then letting that be the thing that would springboard your long-term financial fundraising strategy. And so we're off to a flying start, and a month later, it, we got it got all knocked down, but, you know, we're going to pick ourselves back up and get ready to, to roll as soon as we're able to get back out there and start this thing rolling again. I'm sure that eventually people will be so excited to have sports back that they will be there in droves, and I can, I hope to be one of them. But I have to ask, what is it like when you have a kid come to the museum and they don't know anything about the Negro Leagues? Because I'm sure you guys get tons of families, but also school trips mm -hmm. and summer camp trips. And I'm sure a yeah. lot of kids don't know about the Negro Leagues because we're already very far removed from the existence of the active games of the Negro Leagues. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's mind-blowing for the kids who come here because, as you touched on, they've been removed from these kind of struggles. They can't even fathom that our country was once separated by color. So segregation is something that absolutely blows them away. And as I tell people, most of our children summarize segregation quite simply. That was dumb. And they're right. It was dumb. It was absolutely dumb. Uh, but it's important that they understand that life hasn't always been as good as it is for some of our citizens in this country and that you could go to jail for sitting in the wrong section of a ballpark or drinking from the wrong water fountain or using the wrong restroom. And quite frankly, going to jail was some of the good things that happened. A lot of people lost their lives for breaking those simple societal standards. And so what we've attempted to do here with this amazing story of the Negro Leagues is kind of help simplify segregation by telling it through the eyes of these legendary baseball players. And so when they come here and they see that there was no place for these athletes to eat between St. Louis and Chicago or between St. Louis and Kansas City, unless they could find a Black-owned establishment, it blows them away. But what we also demonstrate to them is they never allow that social adversity to kill their love of this game. So if I've got to sleep on the bus and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. And that's the prevailing spirit that you feel here. This is not a woe is mine kind of story. These athletes never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you. I create my own. And, and I think there's a deep-rooted message there. And, and for our young folks who are being introduced to this story, likely for the very first time, just as many of the adults are being introduced to it for the first time, a lot of people did not know a Negro Leagues existed. There's these life lessons that stem from this story that I think are still very prevalent today. And so, yes, they come in and they learn it for its rich educational value, but there's an inspirational value associated with this museum. And, and I think for the more majority of our visitors, 
when you walk away from this, this experience, I think what the Negro Leagues teaches us is real simple. And it applies to our young people beautifully. In this great country of ours, if you dare to dream and you believe in yourself, you can do or be anything you want to be. They dared to play baseball. That was their dream. They dreamed to play baseball. They had no idea that they were making history. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play ball. But again, the pride, the passion, the courage, the determination, the perseverance that they demonstrated in the face of adversity. And as I share with my guests all the time at the conclusion of our tour, this story transcends race, it transcends age, and it transcends gender. So what's not to love about this story? And I do think it can be in some ways life-changing, life-altering, because, again, the more majority of the people that come here didn't know this story, and they certainly didn't know the story to the magnitude in which it exists, and this is as triumphant, inspirational story as you will ever encounter, or as, again, like I like to say, it is the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. And I think that's the thing that's the most amazing about the Negro Leagues and the museum now is that they took things that were so negative, you know, exclusion mm -hmm. and segregation, and mm -hmm. instead of being beaten down by them and, and letting that kind of those forms of hatred win, they turned it into something so beautiful and inclusive. And that's not to gloss over, of course, the hardships that Negro Leagues players endured in terms of, you know, they weren't making the kind of money, like not everyone was making Satchel Page money. And there were plenty of times where they experienced awful hate and terrible conditions but the Negro Leagues was the only inclusive league that allowed anyone who wanted to play. They had women. They were the only league that had any women. And yeah. that, that's because Major League Baseball wouldn't have them. And the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League wouldn't have the women. And they said, OK, well, we'll, we'll have anybody. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't care what color you were. And they didn't care what gender you were. And, and you're right. And, and I think that's the thing that I find amazing about this story. Here's a league born out of segregation that would essentially become the driving force for social change in this country. And again, as you just mentioned, a league born out of exclusion would become perhaps this country's most inclusive entity. You know, it opened its doors to women, uh, both as players as well as executives. And, and so they were ahead of society. And, and to me, that's a beautiful aspect of this overall story. They failed to succumb to treating others the way that they were being treated. I always say a person's treatment of you speaks more about them than it does about you. You know, if someone treats you with hate, and we see it all the time, you know, with bullying online and the resurgence or I mean, it's not like it ever really went away, but the, the rise in hate crimes and racism and anti-Semitism in this country today, these people are acting this way because of who they are, not because of who you are. And, exactly. and as hard as it is to remember sometimes, I mean, that is that is the truth of it. It is absolutely that. And, and And again, you know, I hope that what the museum can do and continue to be is this wonderful tool 
of demonstrating why diversity and inclusion are so important in our society. And, and so, yeah, it, it's it's a special place on a lot of levels. And, and that's why I say you don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy this museum. Now, of course, we certainly believe that if you're not a fan, that's sacrilegious, but that's okay. You don't have... <laughs> You don't have to be a baseball fan. If you are a fan of American history, you're going to love this museum. If you are a fan of the underdog overcoming trials and tribulations to go to to go on to greatness, you're going to love this museum. But if you are a baseball fan to boot, you are in hog heaven. It provides everything that a baseball fan could absolutely love, but it's there for any and everybody and I think having met so many people in the museum, I've met a lot of people who have expressed the fact that they're not sports fans or baseball fan at all, but as one lady told me, I just spent three hours in your museum and I was absolutely blown away. Well, that is one of the greatest compliments I think we could ever get because that's how we tried to build this experience so that when you walk through this museum, you are going to learn not only about these legendary ball players, but you're going to learn about the history of this country simultaneously. That's exactly what it is, because baseball is kind of a microcosm of this country and of like life in general, that the lessons that you learn from both the history of baseball and from how to play the game of baseball and be in the game of baseball, to be a supportive teammate, to play the game honorably, to be inclusive and fair. Those are lessons that take you way beyond the baseball diamond. Those are things that, you know, play into how you become a person. And you learn a lot. I think that the the museum teaches you a lot of those things in the frame of this very epic story. Yeah, and, and I think that's why, as I say, people leave here cheering the human spirit. That's why I just wholeheartedly believe, you know, again, what's not to love about the story? It is everything we pride ourselves about being American because it is about pride and it's about passion. It's about perseverance. It's about refusing to accept the notion that you're unfit to do anything. So I'll show you. Absolutely. We ask everybody, first of all, I want to ask you to just tell us quickly, like one of your favorite Negro League stories, because I'm sure a lot of people won't know the story that you tell because you have so many of them. And then the second thing <laughs> is your favorite sports memory is something we ask everybody who comes on the show because um, we know that everyone will end up having a different sports memory or at the very least a different perspective on the same sports memory. Yeah, well, and I'm going to start with my favorite sports memory because uh, my favorite sports memory just happened last week, and that was Henry Aaron's breaking of Babe Ruth's record. I was nearly 12 years old when Henry Aaron hit record home run number 715 in Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium. I was a kid growing up in nearby Crawfordville, Georgia, which is about 80 miles east of Atlanta. And I told him this story. When he hit record home run 715, I'm in my parents' living room, and as he's circling the bases in Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, I am literally circling the bases in my parents' living room. So the old couch was first base. The old TV was second base. She had another old couch that was third base, and my mother's recliner was home plate. And so as my childhood idol, Henry Aaron, was touching them all, I was touching them all, jumping for joy. At nearly 12 years old, I would turn 12 in June of that year. And so that is, I think, my greatest sports memory of all time. 
you know, and because again, even in my little town of Crawfordville, Georgia, there was a lot of separation and there was some angst because here was this black man in the deep south about to break a record that nobody ever thought would be broken. And, and so even in the 1970s, there was a lot of racial tension going on, particularly in the South. And so there was division even in my little hometown. And so this was an epic moment for me as a kid to witness because, you know, Hank Aaron is my all-time favorite baseball player. And this was before I even knew he had played in the Negro Leagues. I didn't really learn that he had played in Negro Leagues until I got involved with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, and so, and that was one of the most eye-opening things for me. And it set the stage for me wanting to learn as much as I could about this rich history. So that's my favorite sports memory. You know, there are so many great stories that I like to tell. And, and one of my favorite Satchel Page stories of many Satchel Page stories is a story that Buck O'Neill told for me because a lot of people because Satchel Gabrielle was so outgoing and so gregarious and so charismatic that and for a man who didn't have a formal education he was as wise beyond his years and so Buck says they're in Florida and Satchel says the night before he called Buck Nancy he said Nancy Lahoma who was Satchel's wife Lahoma is going to cook fish and grits for breakfast well the catch is we got to go catch the fish. So they hire a guy who had an old outboard motorboat. They're going to go on the Tam Miami Trail. And Satchel not only thought he was the greatest pitcher in the world, he thought he was the greatest fisher and hunter in the world. And, and so everybody's fishing. And, Gabrielle, everybody's caught a fish except for Satchel. And they're razzing Satchel. Satchel, we thought you were the greatest fisherman in the world. You can't fish. You know, and, and Buck says Satchel's got a line in the water, and the line has three hooks on it. And he says, wouldn't you know, three fish would hit at the same time. Oh Satchel my. pulls out the line. He's jumping around in the boat. I told y'all I was the greatest fisherman in the world. I told you I'm the greatest of all time. And, and so he takes off one fish. He takes off another fish. And he throws the other fish back into the water. And Buck says, Satchel, what are you doing? He said, Nancy, it's just me and Lahoma. We don't need the third fish. And so Buck says, as they're now starting to head back to go back toward the hotel and they're in the water, they get into an area where there's this cluster of black snakes. I mean, he said it must have been hundreds of them as if they were mating or something. And, and, and they had an old single repeating 22 rifle on the boat and buck gets up and he's going to shoot the snake and he says satchel pushes the gun down he says nancy don't shoot the snake if the snake is at the sir john hotel where they were staying then you shoot him but we are the intruders here don't shoot the snake and, and satchel was a lot deeper than a lot of people ever gave him credit for. And, and, and that, sto that story stuck with me, you know, of all the great pitching stories that I tell, because the stories around Satchel the Man are not as prevalent. And that's one of my favorite Satchel Page stories. I love that so much. Wow. And I knew that you would have the most unique stories 
when I asked you these two questions. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm gonna get the best ones from Bob. No one pack it up. No one else is even like no future guest is gonna top that. Wow. Thank you so much. I mean, this You're was so welcome. Such, a treat, such a treat. And I hope that we can do it again sometime. And I hope that you're staying safe and that we'll be able to do all kinds of centennial celebrations very soon and safely, of course, um, because the world just needs more of this museum and needs more of you. Yeah, no, I I am really looking forward to it. And, and we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And I'm looking forward to seeing you here in Kansas City at this museum and you know, again, I want to encourage everybody to, to stay safe and we'll get out of this thing hopefully sooner than later. Yes. Thank you so much. My uh, pleasure, Gabrielle. And Bob, before we go, just tell everybody where they can find you on social media and how they can virtually stay connected and educated with the museum. Well, you can find me on Twitter at NLBMPrez, P-R-E-Z. Uh, that's the same username on Instagram. And then you can also visit the Negro Leagues Museum website at www.nlbm.com. Thank you so much. Time's a million. And I will talk to you soon. All right, dear. Thank you. I'm really bummed that Al wasn't able to be a part of that interview because like I said, Bob is just the most incredible person, but he has already agreed to come back on. And so next time we will both get to chat with him and we hope you enjoyed this special interview with him. As you can probably tell, he just is like the warmest, kindest ray of light in the baseball world. So make sure you give him a follow. And like I said earlier, we're going to be linking the Act Blue page that splits donations across various important racial injustice organizations fighting to make this world a safer and more equal place. Please bug the hell out of Louisville elected officials for Breonna Taylor. Just keep fighting for her. I saw earlier on Twitter, someone said if something like if the people that you're following have stopped talking about Black Lives Matter movement already, then you're following the wrong people. And it's so true. Like, just keep talking about it. Don't stop sharing stuff. I know that a lot of the stuff is uncomfortable, but that's the point. You can't just like sit, realize that you're uncomfortable and then be like, all right, I'm going to push it away. Um, we have to like keep being uncomfortable. So donate, sign petitions. Like you don't have to march, um, especially if you're immunocompromised or like you've been sick or like you're not feeling well. Like don't, please don't march and get like, like there's still a global pandemic. There are so many things that you can do. Like our guest last week, Komet Alston said, some people, their duty is to protest. Some people's duty is to donate. Some people's duty is to like educate and read and like share on social media. Figure out like what your duty is and then do that. Instead of beating yourself up for what you can do, do what you can. And that's our show for today. Be sure to download and subscribe to Girl at the Game podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Libsyn. And follow us on social media at Girl at the Game. And also, in case you haven't seen on Twitter, Girl at the Game is now on Coffee K-O-F-I. You can support us help us pay for stuff like the podcasting platform and hiring writers for the website by going to ko-fi.com slash girl at the game. All of your money is going to go to helping us grow girl at the game. We want to be able to hire more women and keep expanding. 
And we can't do that alone. So if you have the money, give us some of it. (laughs) All right. And now we'll send you guys out with a little 3LW. Have a great weekend. 